Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Lydia Polgreen, the editor-in-chief of HuffPost. Polgreen spent nearly 15 years at the New York Times, where she was a bureau chief in West Africa, and she also reported from India before becoming the editorial director of New York Times Global. Several months ago, she took over Ariana Huffington's old job at the Huffington Post, renamed it HuffPost, and has announced plans to expand the website's presence in the age of Trump. Paul Green joins me from HuffPost New York City offices. Lydia, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate having you on. You're welcome. Thanks for your interest. I wanted to start by asking you why it is you decided to leave the Times to come to HuffPost. You know, I I had worked at the New York Times for uh, almost 15 years, and I'd had a very really wonderful career there. Um, I'd had what had always been my dream job, which is to be a foreign correspondent in Africa. I worked in West Africa, um, in in uh, South Asia, and in um, South Africa. And I, you know, came back. I was uh, deputy international editor. Had was sort of climbing the management ladder, and really, it had never never really crossed my mind to leave the times because, you know, it's, it's this great temple of journalism and, um, you know, they'd always treated me really, really well. But, you know, after the election, it just became clear to me that there was an enormous white space in the media landscape that needed to be filled by someone. You know, you have these news organizations like the New York Times, like the Washington Post, the FT Economist, who are um, doing really, really great journalism and, um, you know, are, speaking really directly to this, the same group of people, um, that there is a kind of elite audience that's extremely well served by elite media. And I had really started to think in the aftermath of the 2016 election, what would it mean to have a news organization that didn't see itself as necessarily writing about people who feel left out of the political and economic power equations, but really for them, and what that might look like? Just to talk about how we got to that divide that you're talking about, do you think that the fact that a lot of people don't trust the media is a result of the fact that the media is not writing for them? Or do you think that there are other societal things at work? I think we're living through a time in which all institutions are suffering from major loss of trust, right? I mean, this is, this is, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a crisis of trust across the board. Um, people don't have trust or faith in government. They don't have trust or faith in big business. Um, you know, faith in, in, in even religious institutions across the board. We're seeing this loss of, loss of trust and loss of faith. And, um, you know, I think that the media is, is very naturally kind of caught up in that. Um, if you look at, if you look at the, um, if you look at the data uh, from the 2016 Pew survey, about 18% of Americans said they had a high level of trust in the national media, um, which is a really, really small number. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of correlate that with, um, you know, the fact that since 1990, about 250,000 journalism jobs have, have vanished, um, the vast majority of them being in local journalism. And I think there's a really, um, this, this, this loss of trust in some ways feels to me, um, related to, uh, deepening inequality. And deepening inequality is very much tied to centralization of, of, of power, you know, um, whether it's economic power, political power, um, social power. And so as a result of that, I think you're seeing that you have fewer and fewer people who feel like they're bought into the institutions of power, but instead feel like they're acted upon by those institutions. 
You wrote in your editor's letter, you said, and yet in the aftermath of the, the, the sort of introductory letter you sent to readers when you took over the job, you said, and yet in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election, a lot of journalists are asking ourselves whether our audience should trust us. How were we so wrong? Do, do you think the main error from journalism in the 2016 election was that Trump's chances were understated? I, I guess I'm wondering... What is it that you think journalists did wrong in the last election and what can can we do better? I think it's a couple of things. Um, you know, the 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 fact is that there there was an incredibly um strong reliance on reporting um around data. Um, you know, we certainly saw that at the New York Times on election night. That was that infamous ticker that um, you know, showed that there was a, you know, at, at points eighty plus percent uh chance of of Hillary winning. Um and this 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 feeling of of inevitability around um around um Around a Hillary win based on, on polling data. Now, of course, it turned out that the polling data, um, in, in, in many cases was actually not that far off. Um, you know, this was a very close election and, you know, just, just, a, you know, fewer than a hundred thousand votes, um, going a, a, another way in a couple of select states. And, and, you know, we'd be, we'd be telling a very different story. But I think we all really underestimated the appetite for, uh, for, for radical change, um, in the electorate. And I think that has to be deeply connected to, um, you know, a sort of over reliance on um, on data, um, and also a so it's, it's it's both a failure to quantify correctly, but also a failure to correctly read the emotional temperature of the country, and that that emotional aspect is really important to me because, you know, I, I feel like we've we, we're we're living in this era where we're all talking about um, you know numbers and data and facts, um, but the way that someone feels about something is also has the force of the fact, um, and. And we often treat emotion and people's perceptions of their personal situation as being um, sort of something subjective. And, and in a certain way, it is. But for that person, it really does have the force of a fact. Well, and we need to take that seriously. Right. I mean, well, I, I feel like I should I should speak up for data nerds and just say that um, is my understanding. I'm not very smart about this stuff. But I think just because that they, you know, they said something had an 80 percent chance of happening that didn't happen, that doesn't mean that they were inherently wrong. Although I, I agree with you that I think people probably got a a poor impression of um, the, the, the strange things going on in the United States just from looking at percentage numbers from data heads. But I, I guess I guess what I want to ask you is it feels to me and maybe we disagree here, but it feels to me you talk about people's feelings and how important they are and their emotions and so on. It just feels to me that the single article in journalism I've read the most in the last year and a half is telling us how Trump voters are feeling and what they think about things and just them going on and on ad nauseum about their different feelings, whether they're connected to reality or not. And so I, I, I'm sort of sick of that piece about sort of the white working class and, you know, how they're thinking about things. I mean, do, do you think that there hasn't been enough of that or you think the article should be written a different way? Oh, I absolutely think there has been more than enough um, articles about, you know, the downtrodden white working class uh, from a kind of anthropological perspective. Um, for me, it's more of a question of tone and perspective, right? And this is why I, th I talk about writing um, for rather than about. Um, there's been a lot of what I like to think of as elite splaining. Um, you know, you'll have reporters from, uh, from, from New York or Washington or LA or San Francisco fly into some Appalachian 
Christian um, town and write about how awful things are. Uh, and their primary goal is to explain that awfulness and help um, help the readers of these publications understand um, how these people feel. Um, but I think that's very different from writing journalism that's actually addressed to the lived experience of the people who are actually experiencing it. Um, and I don't, I don't, I think, I think a lot of the kinds of things that I'm thinking about are things that local journalism used to do. Um, you know, I think tabloid, uh, New York City tabloids, for example, or the big Chicago tabloids, um, really saw themselves as 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 representing the point of view of the working person, the person who feels like they're getting screwed by big powerful institutions. Um, so I think I think that it's not necessarily that we need more of these kind of safaris into Trump land, but um, I think I think something deeper and truer is is needed. And what the exact format of that is or what it looks like, um, I think I'll know it when I see it, but um, it's definitely not just going out and asking people how they feel. Elite splaining is the whole point of this podcast, so don't be too critical of it. <laughs> um, let me ask you this I, I, about reaching Trump voters. You know, when I go to HuffPost every day and I check on the headlines and I read your stories, and um, and I, I say this not critically because I work for a place, Slate, that does the exact same thing, but I, I notice at least, and especially in the last few months, sort of incredible levels of sarcasm and uh, often wit and just kind of, I, I don't want to say condescending because I enjoy it, but very acerbic tones towards Trump and what's going on in the country. And I, I do wonder along the lines of what you're saying about reaching a broader audience. I mean, I, I don't think that the reason Trump voters maybe don't trust the New York Times is because the headlines are too acerbic, but I do wonder how anyone who's sympathetic to Trump or his point of view coming to HuffPost, it seems like immediately they would be turned off because the first thing they see are headlines mocking them. I would take issue with the characterization that our headlines mock people who support Trump. Um, you know, our orientation is not to one party or one politician or or against one. I mean, our orientation is 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 towards power, and it's an antagonistic orientation. Um, the people, the person who has the most power right now is Donald Trump, and so our journalism towards him is going to be pretty antagonistic, especially given the program that he's trying to um, to enact in Washington. Um, you know. But I would also say that I don't see us as trying to win over the, 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 the Breitbart audience. And to be frank, the audience for Breitbart is shrinking by the day, right? I mean, I think I read in the Washington Post the other day that their, their, their traffic has plummeted by 53% or something. Um, you know, their advertisers are fleeing. Um, you know, I was very convinced by the Margaret Sullivan, um, column arguing that, um, you know, the, the point is not to, um, say something nice about Trump as the, uh, New York Times Week in Review section says, but to be tough and fair and to choose what you emphasize and how much you emphasize it. I've been trying to make sure that we are, exhibiting a healthy balance between covering the internecine fights within the, the the White House, which are very entertaining, the who's up, who's down, you know, uh, Sessions is losing influence, Bannon is up, you know, Jared Kushner isn't on speaking terms with Trump, all of that kind of coverage, to me, um, is is not really our wheelhouse. Um, you know, as, as I speak, we have the main the main splash on our on our homepage is a piece about the history of the food stamps program and what the Trump budget might mean for it. So for me, it's really about the kinds of stories that we choose to emphasize and the impact that they're going to have on people rather than um, necessarily thinking about, you know, kind of the who's up, who's down type of coverage of Washington, which is what you're seeing from from a lot of other news organizations. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the, the I think we have enough who's up, who's down coverage um, you see in the media. And I, I was actually just reading that that food stamp piece, which I think is the type of thing that people should be writing about. Uh, the, I guess my point was uh, the headline of that piece is making America hungry again, which I agree is not mocking Trump voters per se, but it's sort of mocking this whole idea of behind Trump's campaign, which I, I guess gets to my larger question of, when you're dealing with people who have different ideas of facts as well as opinions, it's not just that people have a different point of view on, you know, whether a woman should have a right to have an abortion. Also, questions of whether global warming is happening, all these things that we know how Trump voters or many Trump voters think about things. Do you have some idea of how you can reach those people in a way that other news organizations haven't? Or because it seems like you don't think it's a lost cause. Uh, I, I don't think it's a lost cause. I think most people are fundamentally not ideological and they tend to, um, their views tend to be formed by the people around them and the things that they care about on a day to day basis. Um, so a lot of, you know, there was a significant number of people who voted for Trump after having voted for Obama in 2012. I mean, it wasn't the majority of Trump voters, obviously, but there was a, there was a, there was a, a sizable chunk. I think it was around 12%. So, I mean, I, I, I hate to think of this, this, this group of people who voted for Trump as this massive monster. Monolith, um, and 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 to be fair, um, you know, I think it's just as important for us to reach out to people who didn't vote at all, um, and uh, people who who are, are sort of so alienated from the political process that they're that they're just not even really paying attention. I think a lot about people who who don't really read a lot of news or don't consume a lot of news. Um, you know, that that group of people I think is 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 a really important audience for for HuffPost. I also think that. Um, you know, for me, one of the most important ways that you can make news connect is through emotion. And so, and, and I would incu- include humor and sarcasm as, as emotions. And, and that's something that we definitely get from the, uh, the tabloid tradition, right? That you use your headlines as a way to really kind of like smack people in the face with, this is what the impact of this thing is going to be. So, you know, in the example of the um, food stamp story, we had a, a picture of a breadline from the Depression era and, uh, you know, make America hungry again is the headline. Uh, the goal is to, to, to really kind of put front and center for the reader how far of a step back this is and how, how the, the food stamps program came to be in the first place and the bipartisan consensus around the idea that the wealthiest country in the world should not have people that are hungry. And in order to make that, that emotional connection, I think you need to have that in your face. You know, here's a, 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 a picture that really brings that home and a headline that really brings that home as well, but speaks with real sort of power and emotion rather than a dry kind of, the, here, here are the, the 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 numbers for the number of people who who, who use food stamps or or some sort of policy analysis. That, that that the emotion is 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 really a hugely important and compelling part of the package. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
I want to talk to you about your reporting career before you became an editor. You were at the Times for about 15 years, I guess. Um, what was your first? I know you did a little Metro reporting, correct, before you went overseas? Yeah. I mean, I had your typical um, of, of the time apprenticeship. Uh, I worked at a couple of smaller newspapers, one in Albany and then one in um, in Florida, the Orlando Sentinel. Um, you know, they're, they're not tiny papers. Those are actually pretty, pretty substantial newspapers. Um, and uh, was hired into uh, the Intermediate Reporter Program at the New York Times when I was about 26 years old in 2002. And uh, my, 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 sort of two years as a Metro reporter were spent doing the great things that Metro reporters typically do. I spent some time in uh, what's uh, affectionately known as the shack, which is the uh, absolutely disgusting warren of rooms at one police plaza, uh, which is police headquarters here in New York City, uh, you know, kind of learning at the um, at the elbow of some of the great police reporters of the New York Times. Um I, I was sent up to the Westchester Bureau for a while to uh, cover the suburbs. Um, which was another sort of typical station of the cross. So, you know, they kind of put you through your paces and, and, and you learn how to, you know, how to be a, a New York Times reporter. Um, and it was, it was incredibly exciting. I, I'd always had this, this passion though, to be a foreign correspondent. And at the earliest opportunity, I put up my hand and said, Oh, I'd really like to do this. And, um, you know, the, the opportunity came along sooner than I thought. Uh, there was an unexpected uh, vacancy in the West Africa Bureau, and they needed someone who was available to go sort of on a moment's notice. And um, being uh, young and, and unencumbered, um, you know, and and blessed with a spouse who's kind of up and game for anything, um, you know, I packed up and, and moved in um, at the end of 2004 and became the uh, Dakar correspondent. And so what from a foreign reporting maybe uh, specifically – do you think you learned that changed the way you think of the job of editing? <laughs> that's a, you know that's a great question. I you know the, the 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 wonderful thing about being a foreign correspondent is that you're really kind of a one man band. Um, you know your editors are very far away. Uh, they can't um, you know they can't really micromanage your work. Um, and and that's especially so don't micromanage. That's the lesson apparently. <laughs> Well, it's especially true when you're when you're in 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 a place like West Africa. And I mean, I ended up ranging even further and and did some did some work in East Africa as well, and you know, spent time in Congo, um, just uh, you know, more Central Africa. But you know, the great thing about being a correspondent in Africa, especially for the New York Times, is that it's this wonderful combination of the you know, the Times has this deep commitment to covering Africa um, and to having really sort of strong and rigorous coverage. I mean, they continue to have three bureaus on the in Sub-Saharan Africa, which I think is a, a pretty significant commitment. But there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of guidance or dare I say meddling um, to say this is what you absolutely have to cover. So you have a tremendous amount of freedom. And, um, you know, I had a very clear idea of the things that I was passionate about. And I, I, you know, I did a fair amount of conflict reporting, but I was also really interested in the development of democracy um, in, in Africa, because it's something that I had, uh, you know, essentially lived through. When I was six years old, there was an attempted coup in Kenya that actually involved Rilo Odinga, who later became a, a leading political figure once again, and um, in a in a in another disputed election in in Kenya, um, and and then when I was in high school, and these were really kind of bookend moments for me. When I was in high school, there was a transition to democracy in in Ghana, where uh, the then you know military dictator Jerry Rawlings decided to run for office in a genuinely free and fair election, and you know. 
having lived through these events, I was very passionate about this question of self-governance and democracy and, you know, the tension of importing kind of Western style um, liberal democracy into developing countries. I was very interested in questions of development because that's the the work that my father had done. He'd been an um, agricultural engineer and and involved in in, in vocational education and farming and that kind of stuff. And so, uh, you know, I'd seen up close the developmental policies as they played out over the years, you know, going from an emphasis on agriculture to one on, on of, of macroeconomics and things like that, and 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 some of the damage that came as a result of structural adjustment and um and and the various ways in which, uh, you know, highly experimental theories about economic development were put into play in in extremely uh, vulnerable places. Did it also make you think? I mean, there's obviously been a lot of talk here in the past couple of years about the strength of our the strength or non-strength of our democracy and building institutions or watching institutions tumble. I mean, do you feel like that experience gave you any insight into what we've seen the last bit of time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that um, when I was a correspondent, my favorite place to report was Nigeria. And the reason that Nigeria was so compelling to me was that it, it reminded me most of the United States. It's this, you know, very diverse, polyglot, you know, highly entrepreneurial country that in some ways shouldn't make sense, but manages to make sense anyway. There was perpetually a prediction that Nigeria was going to come apart because it was made up of too many different ethnic groups and, you know, too many warring factions. And, you know, eventually, of course, the United States did have a civil war and, and, and Nigeria did have a civil war too, um, during, during Biafra. But, you know, in the main, the place is held together and, um, I just always found it to be an incredibly compelling experiment in, people from all kinds of different walks of life and religions and and speaking different languages, trying to figure out and negotiate ways to um, to exist together in the same space. You know, I covered the 2007 uh, elections there, and most of those elections were uh, completely fraudulent. There was ballot stuffing. There was all kinds of nasty things that happened. But, uh, you know, there are 36 governors in Nigeria. And um, I think in the end, the courts ended up awarding the wins to the vast majority of the legitimate winners after sort of a long process of so i mean it's one thing to be able to hold a credible election a country like congo can can have you know a beautiful election with lots of observers and ballot boxes that aren't stuffed and things like that but it doesn't have the kind of basic furniture of democracy um and nigeria kind of has the basic furniture of democracy um i have to say that Coming back to the United States, um, I've and and particularly in this era, I'm starting to ask myself questions about the basic furniture of our democracy. It's funny. So after West Africa, you went to India, right? What what year were you in India? I want to say that I moved to India in 2009. I think we both know a lot of people in India from in sort of the journalism world, and I, just talking to people there about about being in India at that time, they definitely feel like being there around that time really gave them kind of glimmers of insight into what's been happening here the last couple of years in terms of sort of right-wing use of social media going forward and things like fake news. And I was curious if your India experience, if you felt like that was helpful. 
Oh, absolutely. And the parallels actually go back even further, right? I mean, I arrived just after the general election in India, where the Congress party had been returned to power. And people thought that, you know, there had been a kind of permanent realignment and that the country had put behind it these, you know, deep divisions, um, you know, that the whole Hindutva, the right wing Hindu thing was essentially dead and gone. Um, you know, that Congress was going to basically govern, have an almost permanent governing coalition. And watching the sort of la- the back end of the Obama administration really reminded me of that moment of that sense of inevitability that, you know, there was this kind of permanent democratic majority that was coming into power and that all the demographics were on the side of, um, of the Democrats and that, um, and that, you know, there was really no way that, um, that, that the Republicans were going to be facing a very steep climb in the future. Um, all of those things played out in India almost to a T um, when I was there. I just want to turn back to HuffPost and your work there. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in your in your letter is you talk about your background. This is sort of when you were talking about journalism becoming highly concentrated in these urban centers. Um, you said, you know, my father is a disabled vet. My mother is an African immigrant. I went to college in part thanks to a Pell Grant, a government program available only to the poorest students. My grandparents on my father's side were Goldwater Republicans. And, you know, I know you've talked a lot about diversity in newsrooms, both in terms of racial, gender, ideological, and so on. What what did you see in terms of diversity when you were at the Times? And was there anything about it that you want to improve on in your new rule or change? New role, not rule. I just said. <laughs> role, role, not role. Yes, with a scepter. I'm sitting here with my 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 yeah, royal yeah, HuffPost scepter. Regna, you're um, you know, I think all news organizations struggle with diversity. Um, you know, and I and I wouldn't necessarily want to single out the Times as being any better or any worse. Um, I think they've got a tremendous commitment to bringing in lots of different kinds of um, of voices, um, and I think they've done a commendable commendable job thus far of doing it. Um, and I think nobody there is satisfied with how far they've come. Um, you know, to me, you know, I think of diversity in very in very broad terms, as as you said. Um, you know, I I went to college at a, at a place called Saint. John's, which has this, you know, dead white men, great books program. Um, and uh, it, it was very popular with, um, with, with conservative parents who sent their kids there because they wanted them um, to, to be spared from, uh, you know, uh, postmodernism and and uh, intersectionality although that that term wasn't really a term of art way back when when I was in college um but there were also you know people who were more like my parents who uh you know sort of liked the idea of the curriculum and wanted um wanted their kids to to have a kind of unconventional education um and that's definitely what what drew me to it um so I've always you know I've always had a kind of um I've always been a, a kind of poor fit with the um you know sort of lefty identitarian world um, just because of, of where I was educated and how deep an imprint that left on me. Um, the idea of, of a heterodox um, uh, educational environment is is something that, I mean, it's, it's something that I really treasured. So, so ideological diversity is really important to me. I think this is a strange time, though, because um, if, if anything, class diversity seems to be the thing that journalism needs most of all. Um, you know, I feel as though... Journalism has become a more elite profession, and um, you know, I have a soft spot for people who who went to state colleges, people who grew up in places outside of, you know, the the, the great metropolitan areas of the country, uh, you know, people who who are, are are people of faith, whatever faith that that might be. Um, we're all trying to make a a more perfect um, union together, and um, and it's a constant struggle. 
Uh, last question, which is that, you know, a lot of the news breaking we've seen in the last uh, three or four months, is an overwhelming amount, I would say, has come from the Times and the Post, uh, which obviously they have amazing journalists there. And also they have the kind of resources to throw a lot of reporters at an issue, whether it's Russia or whatever. I mean, do you think about how to compete with what they're trying to do? Or are you thinking that there's a niche to do something else? Or how are you thinking about that moving forward? I think that the the great thing about the digital age that we're living in is that everybody can read everything and everything feeds off of everything, right? Um, I, I think it would be a poor use of um, our resources to try and replicate what the Post and the Times are doing. I think we need to pick the issues that we think are most important to our audience, that our audience is most passionate about and has the deepest effect on them, and and really run after those. And so, you know, I, I look at issues like like voting rights, um, like, like the food stamp bill, um, you know, the census, uh, Changes at the EPA, um, you know, uh, corruption, local government, things like that. Um, you know, are we going to have every twist and turn of what's going on in the Oval Office and and its environs? Probably not. Um, you know, are we going to have every twist and turn of the Russia investigation? I don't think so. Um, but, you know, we can use our um, journalistic resources to go after stories that, that we think are, are, are of, of, of paramount importance to our readers. And those are the ones that, that, that really deeply and truly affect their lives. Now, I think, I think that the, you know, sort of Russia campaign story is, you know, perhaps the most important story uh, in the country right now, um, because it really does call into question the legitimacy of our elections. And, and, uh, but what's interesting is that we're seeing in our, just in our reader data, that there is a considerable amount of fatigue about that story. And what that tells me is not that we shouldn't cover it, but that that's not the only thing people want to be paying attention to. So we're trying to um, to get out there and tell, tell all kinds of stories. Lydia, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate having you on. It's a pleasure. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from Daniel Schrader. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Don't miss out on more episodes of this show. Go to slate.com slash ask to subscribe. That's slate.com slash A-S-K. One other thing today, I want to recommend another Slate podcast, which is called Trumpcast. The hosts are Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, and Jamel Bowie. They rotate, and they talk about all things Trump. They go deep on his latest tweets, his scandals. They have questions for him. They air their concerns. It's a really phenomenal podcast covering all things Trump, and I really encourage people to listen to it. It's called Trumpcast, and you can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts.